The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Hear now from Hebrews, that first verse of the psalm that we just sang together. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. To which of the angels has he, God, ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Father, you said such amazing words to no angel, as great and magnificent as they are. None of them come close to your eternal son, the radiance of your being, the exact imprint of your nature, the creator of the universe and sustainer of the universe by the word of his power, who became our human brother, who became for a little while lower than the angels, and has now been exalted and crowned with glory and honor, seated at your right hand. Father, thank you for such a great champion, such a great savior as your beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nourish our hearts as we reflect on his majesty this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. may be seated. If the preacher to the Hebrews had taken homiletics courses at Westminster Seminary, California, he would know that it's important to preach a textual sermon from a specific text of the Bible. Topical sermons maybe now and then, but mainly expound a text of the Bible. And if he had taken that course, Psalm 110 would be his text. Uh, Actually, in many ways, it is his text. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, In the prologue, he's alluded to this verse that we just heard, the climax of the seven texts that he's quoting here when he speaks of Christ uh, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He'll return to Psalm 110, verse 1, in chapter 8 and in chapter 10. We'll glance at those briefly in these next few minutes. In the central core of the sermon, chapter 7 through 10, he's going to focus on Psalm 110, verse 4, on the son's high priestly ministry forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's a king who's also a priest. And we'll hear that verse quoted, alluded to, or commented on in chapter 5, verses 6 and 10, chapter 6, verse 20, chapter 7, verses 3, 11, 15, 17, 20, 21, 28, and so on. No wonder George Wesley Buchanan in the Anchor Bible volume on Hebrews, the first volume on, uh, written on Hebrews, called Hebrews a homiletical midrash based on Psalm 110. That's New Testamentese for a sermon on Psalm 110. If there were a text, this would be it. And the first verse of this psalm, we know, was leveraged by Jesus himself when his critics accused him of exalting himself to a place that he did not belong, a blasphemy. He posed the question to them. Now, who is, to whom is the Lord speaking? 
sit at my right hand. It says here that the Lord is speaking to my Lord. But we know that Messiah is David's son, and sons are subordinate to fathers, and yet David calls him Lord. He's got to be something more than simply David's biological son, and they had no answer for him. In fact, Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament, 22 times, according to one count at least, alluded to, referenced in what, every time you hear at the right hand of God, you're hearing an allusion in the New Testament, and of course we hear that spilling over into the great ecumenical creeds of the church as well. Now what is our preacher, what does the Holy Spirit, speaking through the preacher, want us to hear specifically about this statement, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's something, as he says in the introduction here, that is unparalleled. He started this series by saying, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Now he concludes, to which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, he's making three points, as he will throughout the sermon. I'm just going to give us a glimpse of each of those three points. First of all, the Son, our priest king, is in heaven at God's right hand. Secondly, our priest king is seated, enthroned in sovereign authority. His atoning mission completed. And then third, our priest king's kingdom is in process, moving toward the consummation of his victory in the subjugation of his enemies. So let's look at those. Our priest king is in heaven at God's right hand. In other words, the preacher to the Hebrews wants us to know that the venue in which Jesus now lives and conducts his ministries of reconciliation, he's the priest, like Melchizedek, and rule, he's the king, like Melchizedek, the venue in which he carries out his ministries is the original reality, not merely a copy and shadow on this earth. That's why he returns to this text at the beginning of chapter 8. He says the point of what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest, All of chapter 7 is about Jesus, the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have one who is seated at the right hand of of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, the true tent, which God set up, not man. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. There's a sanctuary on earth that has other priests descended from Aaron there. But they're serving only a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And then he references the instructions given to Moses on Mount Sinai. I've shown you the template. Have you had a glimpse of heaven? Now make the tabernacle after that pattern. See, the preacher is saying, take seriously that what you cannot see, this thing that you cannot see, this heavenly sanctuary where Jesus is ministering, is far more significant, far more long-lasting than an earthly sanctuary that you can see. I think we're not accustomed to taking seriously realities that we can't see or touch or measure. And obviously the atmosphere of our culture with the emphasis on naturalistic materialism and the scientific method simply dismisses any non-physical 
reality that our scientific industry cannot get its hands on. But this is really nothing new. Uh, my wife and I just finished reading a new novel by Geraldine Brooks. You may know some of her, her novels. It just came out. It's about the life of David. There are problems with it here and there in the novel, but it's also very powerful. It's called The Secret Chord. And uh, she places in the mouth of one of David's wives a pagan princess who was one of David's political alliances. These words, when my father told me that he had made this match for me, that is to marry King David, who was on the rise. I was afraid. I did not want to leave behind my people and my gods, familiar gods that I knew by name, that I could see and touch and worship in the high places. I was afraid of your God, this God whose name I may not even say, whose image I may not even see. Understandable. Of course, Israel's God could not be seen, but he did appoint a place to put his name, built by Solomon eventually, that was built in great glory and then destroyed with the Babylonian invasion and then beginning to be rebuilt at a later point, uh, expanded by King Herod. But now, when this letter is written, soon to be destroyed again. And our preacher is reminding us that that earthly thing that was so seeable and touchable is also destructible and we can take heart that our high priest is serving in the sanctuary in heaven in the real thing what good news it is for us that Jesus our eternal priest is king is at God's right hand in heaven ever living ever praying ever ruling for us even as we are his weary people in this wearing out earth, as we just heard a couple weeks ago in Psalm 102, an earth that will wear out. So take comfort and give thanks. Jesus the Son is at the right hand of the majesty of high, beyond the threatening reach of the decay and decomposition that, that dog our lives every day. That's where he is. What's his posture? Preacher to the Hebrews wants us to notice that our, our priest king is seated. He's enthroned in sovereign authority because his atoning mission is accomplished. In other words, his ministry of reconciliation and rule are simply implementing a decisive priestly work that he's completed once for all. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 the writer talks about the Aaronic priest still serving, at least at that point, in the temple in Jerusalem. Every priest stands daily at his sacrifice, in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now Jesus continues to serve us as priest. And our preacher knows that. In fact, back in chapter 7, he's pointed out that because Jesus continues forever by the power of his indestructible life in office as high priest, he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because 
He lives forever to intercede for us. So as a priest, he's praying for us. But there's one priestly task, really the central task, of Aaron and the high priests who succeeded him in the Old Testament, and that was the entering in to the most holy place on the Day of Atonement once a year. That task, Jesus accomplished now once for all, and it never needs to be repeated, so he takes his seat. When Jesus died on the cross, outside the Jerusalem city gate, he fulfilled once for all both the Passover lamb, the time at which he died in the spring, and the Yom Kippur goats, the one slain, its blood sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, and the other sent away to carry the guilt of the people of God far, far away. Jesus has carried our guilt, carrying it in his own body on the tree. He separated us from it as far as the east is from the west. He's taken his seat. And that means you and I can sit down too. You and I can rest in the accomplishment that Jesus has accomplished. In terms of our relationship to God, of reconciliation with God, he left nothing undone. He left no sacrifice that needs to be offered to atone for our sins. He left no speck of stain on our record. Our justification, God's declaration that we are utterly forgiven and right in God's sight, rests wholly and thoroughly on the righteousness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's the absolutely sufficient foundation for it. Because Jesus is sitting down, we can give up our fretful, we, you know you know that, I know you know that. You're at Westminster, how could you not have heard that before? But still our instinct, when we're, we sense accusation, our instinct is, what should I do to work this off? Now, there is an appropriate fruits expressive of repentance, but it's not to add to what Jesus has done. It's simply the expression of a trust in what he has done and a longing to be made more like him. So that sense, I need to do a little more to turn the frown of God's face back into a smile toward me? No. Jesus turned the frown of the judge into the smile of the Father. John Newton got it right in the 18th century when he wrote in a book about Judgment Day, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders, it's in our Trinity hymnal, see the judge, he's speaking of Jesus now, because the just, Jesus says the judgment has been entrusted by the Father to the Son, see the judge, our nature wearing, clothed in majesty divine, you who long for his appearing, then shall say, this God is mine. Gracious Savior, own me in that day as thine. The judge is our brother and our gracious Savior. And Michael Card got it right in the 20th century. Yes, songs can make good sense, biblical sense, even written in the 20th century. In his song, Jubilee, to be so completely guilty, given over to despair, to look into your judge's face and see your Savior there. Jubilee, jubilee. Jesus is our jubilee. Debt's forgiven. Slaves set free.
Jesus is our jubilee. He's seated. So rest in his righteousness. But his reign is in process. Remember what the psalm says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, between the comings of Christ, we are called to live at a point where not all the enemies are fully subjected yet. Paul tells us the last enemy to be subjected is death. And our preacher knows that not everything is in submission to us or certainly even to the Son of Man. Though he is crowned with glory and honor, Psalm 8 will be quoted in the second chapter, our preacher says, realistically, we do not yet see all things in submission to him. He's in the process of conquering enemies and actually turning them into his willing people. So we suffer and we walk by faith and not by sight. We follow the footsteps, as the preacher will say to us later, the footsteps of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, who did not receive what God promised in full, but greeted those promised things from afar. We are strangers and aliens on the earth. So, like the first century Hebrew Christians, we live in a world where bad stuff still happens. Traffic accidents and illnesses, major and minor, and violence and injustice and exhaustion and discouragement, all those things persist. But God is true to his word. The day is coming when all of his enemies, all our enemies, will be subjugated, the footstool under his feet. And that's the time in which we're called to live. And it's hard, but it's also so comforting that God is waiting in that time because there's a response called forth. It's actually not mentioned in Hebrews, but we've been saying that our preacher wants us to think about the neighbor, not just the words that he quotes, but the neighborhood of the words in the Old Testament. And that's why I wanted us to sing the whole of Psalm 110. Uh, Psalm 110.1, one of his major texts. Psalm 110.4, another one of his major texts, Priesthood of Melchizedek. What about verses 2 and 3 that you sang? What about verses 2 and 3 in the psalm? Not quoted once in Hebrews, not quoted once in the New Testament. But the thoughts there come out so beautifully in Hebrews and throughout the New Testament. The psalm says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of youth will be yours. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely. Two completely separate groups, right? Hmm. Sounds like it in the psalm. But in the biblical, big biblical perspective, they're not so far apart. We were enemies. Born rebels from our father Adam. Born rebels against God. And God has made us his willing people. Isn't that beautiful? The waiting of God until the day comes when he subjugates the last enemy, death, 
and we see Jesus and are raised with him, transformed to be like him, that waiting, that patience, which some consider to be God being late, Peter says, 2 Peter 3, that's not God being late, that's God being patient. That's God gathering in everyone whose name he's written in the Lamb's book of life. Born enemies of God, but transformed at one point or another by his amazing grace in the gospel to be his willing people. So brothers and sisters, in this week, yeah, even in the pressures and the deadlines of this week, offer yourselves to this wonderful priest king who lives and reigns for you. Offer yourselves willingly. You who have been enemies are now his willing people by the grace of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to offer ourselves freely to David's Lord, who is our Lord, who gave himself freely for us. Refresh our hearts, encourage us. How thankful we are that he is ministering on our behalf at your right hand in heaven, the real center of all things. That he's seated, having accomplished all that is needed to wash our conscience and record clean of guilt, never needing to have a sacrifice offered again to atone that he is in the process of turning enemies into his willing people. And the day is coming when all enemies will be put under his feet. Father, encourage our hearts, strengthen us, and give us gratitude for this great Savior you've given to us. We pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.